Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and afterward he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. He answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to the very high mountain and showed him the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, All of these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. The devil left him, and suddenly angels came and waited on him. You can grab a seat. Thanks, John. Thanks, ladies. I don't know what you're supposed to say. Happy Ash Wednesday? It just doesn't seem like, I'm not exactly sure, but thanks for being here. It's so great to experience this with you. Isn't this room fantastic? If you, if you know Dave Harris, be sure to thank him because he's poured a lot of time. I'd like to start by praying. We're just going to jump in. God, uh, Lord, for many of us, this is the first time doing this, and for some, uh, we're hearkening back to years or even decades ago, and uh, I think the fact that we're even in this room is indicative of all that's transpired uh, in the last couple of years. And God, that our, our earnest desire to communion, commune with you is it's different, and we're thankful for that. God, I also would pray that this wouldn't be kind of a circling of the wagons thing, but that you would continuously continue uh, to understand how we best walk with people who are emerging from this season at quite a different spot and quite a different psyche. Thanks, God, for your victory over death. Thanks that you provide an answer otherwise uh, non-existent. Amen. So I suppose the question is, <laughs> what are we doing here? <laughs> because again, we, I've never done this. Many of you have never done this. But here, here's where I take a lot of comfort in that question as I've reflected on and anticipated uh, this experience is, it's not what are we doing here, but I think an equally appropriate, if not important, question is, like, what, what were they doing? Uh, because to whatever extent what we're doing here is new to us, what's, what's crazy for me to think about is that the majority of Christians, for the majority of Christians over the majority of Christian history, this thing called Lent was normative. And, and if I've learned anything as I've just kind of tried to sit with both uh, the Roman Catholic tradition and the Eastern Orthodox tradition, one of the refrains that I repeatedly hear that's really starting to attach itself to my guts is some things you only understand by doing. Uh, I suppose the danger of a season like this is you kind of trump it up as some kind of treadmill and make it make something. And my, my genuine hope and prayer, if this is your first Lent, is that you give yourself permission to relax and trust that you don't have to have clean answers now, but trust that like many of the spiritual practices, they make sense after doing them. 
And yet still, what are we doing here? What were they doing? Why did they do this? And we explored this a couple weeks ago, and I think it's maybe worth revisiting some of those. Like, like part of the historic reason for Lent was this reflection and understanding that, that sin creeps and it seeps. That like the floorboards of our cars, like our bedrooms, so is our own internal relationship with sin, that, that sin creeps in. And especially that the Jewish heritage, it had this way of reflecting every year on the fact that, that we should do something at least once every year that just kind of reminds ourselves that, that sin matters, that purity matters, that repentance is valuable. For the Jewish people, it was the removal of yeast from their, from their home. And for most of Christian history, it's been this 40 days of Lent, this reflection of just creating space where we just say, hey God, uh, there's stuff in my life that I'm not conscious of, more stuff than there's years left in my life for you to talk to me of, but like, what is it this go-around? Uh, on our staff, Justin's kind of introduced us to this terrifying question of, uh, what are our blind spots? I think Lent is a way of saying to God, God, what are my blind spots? I think it's also a way of, of saying uh, that, that self-discipline uh, it's a required skill for the Christian life, and it doesn't come easily. Like, this is a muscle that, that we build. As we reflected on a couple weeks ago, there's this sense of, we, we do Lent for the same reason that football teams do training camp and baseball teams do spring training, except for this year. It's, it's the reason why musicians play endless chords and clinicians put in countless hours and mathematicians solve problems without anybody watching. It's, it's this recognition of we're trying to build a skill, we're trying to build a reserve that we can burn for the rest of the year. It's, it's the same reason couples need date nights and family needs, families need vacation because the, not everything we do in this 40 days is sustainable for the 365, but but we have these seasons of, of fasting to, to just build up some muscle. And the other thing that we explored is that it's in this season that uh, we remind ourselves that God's most likely to be found in the wilderness, that we are a part of a long spiritual heritage, and we're going to explore that a little bit this weekend, but this long heritage of people who understood that God's most likely to be heard in the wilderness. It's not news to any of us in this room that we are in a culture uh, that is like paralyzed by fear and anxiety. Uh, what, what 30 years ago was not even a part of the lexicon, today is a part of almost every conversation. I wonder if part of the value of Lent is this built-in reminder that it's not possible for every day to be a feast day. That part of what we do is we have these cycles of feasting and fasting to remind our own conscious and subconscious selves that some days are just crappy, that you don't always wake up feeling like it's Christmas morning. And I'm not trying to trivialize the emotional distress that people are experiencing, but just maybe part of the value of this is we develop the skill to, to persevere in, in seasons of trouble, but maybe also what we're reminded of and this is really the fourth, th fourth thing that I want to explore here this morning, is that in our weakness, God is strong. And as cliche as that is, well, part, part of what I've been reflecting on is anxiety is by its very definition the anticipation of a, of a dreaded future. I wonder if part of the value of Lent is that we have these experiences of kind of programmed, contained suffering 
to remind ourselves that whatever future suffering, whether the loss of a loved one or a job or whatever else might happen, we don't have to live in dread of that because in those seasons when we're at our weakest form, upon reflection, like we're most satisfied in our communion with him. And I wonder if that might bring some of this back into balance of just helping us live within the rhythms of, of what it means to be human. So it's this idea of what, what if in our weakness he is strong? What if that's a big part of this? And, and historically, just so you know, the first week of Lent is historically a reflection on Matthew 4 and Jesus' temptation. So I'm still a grocery store Protestant where I pick and choose tradition, but this one actually aligns. <laughs> and I just want to think a little bit about that for a moment. Like, think of the story, maybe one of the most iconic in all of Christian history. After Jesus was baptized, like, the graduation ceremony commenced. Uh, he was commissioned as an officer, if you will. Finally, he's a licensed clinician, whatever that is. Jesus is, he, he's led into his public ministry, and the text says, immediately Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted, or some would say tested by the devil. And then it says, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was famished. Which I've always felt like, like brackets, thank you, Captain Obvious. <laughs> but here's really the question that I want to ask here this afternoon is, uh, my, my sense of reading that, and I don't know how many times I've read that, and I don't know what your sense was, mine has always been, like I could always hear Jim Gaffigan in my head, that great sarcastic comedian, kind of going, jeez, Satan, you're sure taking, taking advantage of Jesus at his weakest place. Like there's always been this sense that the whole point of that experience was that God would grind Jesus down to his weakest possible state and then Satan would, would show up and test him and his, his uh, evidence of his strength would be that even in his weakest form, he could stand up to Satan. I actually wonder now if that's anywhere close to accurate. It's predicated, I would argue, on a very Western understanding of fasting, uh, a version that's mostly lost, it's largely academic, but to the extent that it exists, it largely is comprised of this idea that fasting equals no food and no water, or no Netflix, like we have these extreme versions of it. But in general, fasting involving food involved going without. And as we've explored, but I think it's worth revisiting, it's not actually uh, most of church history, and especially the Eastern Church's view of fasting at all. For most of church history, I would argue, and the reason I would say be comfortable saying most is because as my friend Father Moses says, who's an Eastern Orthodox priest, Adam, we're the ones that have stewarded this tradition. Most of you in the West have completely let it die. How do they understand fasting? Well, in its most extreme versions, if you're a monk in a monastery, there's a few days a year where you go without food, but in that version, in the most accomplished, and they see it as a skill that's built over time, it actually means just having one meal that day. And then I was just reading last night that, that the one meal for them, part what they would say is, is nothing that's satiating, no meat, no heavy spices, no creams, no alcohol, nothing that makes you want more. So their version of fasting isn't so much about self-masochism. It's actually about like changing your relationship with food. It's about stopping short of starving, but also stopping short of being completely satiated. One guy that I was reading last week said, and this is an absolute statement, but it's intriguing to think about. He says it's almost, well, he says it's impossible to pray with a full stomach. 
It's interesting to think about, isn't it? See, their understanding is you stop a little bit short of full. Why? Well, that's the million-dollar question. Part of it is to create this nagging sense that's kind of this built-in Apple Watch reminder to pray. That's part of it. But what if part of it is this reminder that life doesn't just come from food? What if that's part of it? Like the question is, was Jesus at his weakest state at the end of those 40 days? Is that the story? Uh, a guy named Alexander Schmemann, kind of the C.S. Lewis of, of more, well, frankly, of Eastern tradition, this brilliant thinker from the 20th century, he observes that in Genesis chapter 1, people show up hungry that were actually made with an appetite. I think it's verse 29, says something like, and then God says, every seed-bearing plant on the earth I give to you for food. What's going on there? Well, he would say that, that what's going on there is God wants us to know we don't contain the ability to sustain our own lives. Like, life comes from outside of ourselves. It's a gift. He would say, food gives life. But there's actually another step, isn't there? God gives food, which gives life. And then there's this question. Is is food uh, the only thing that people hunger for? I mean, this is the crux of the story, isn't it? Thinking even of of, of Augustine. The crux of the story, according to Genesis 1, it would seem is we're not just made for an appetite for food, we're, we're made for an appetite with God. Which brings me back to this question. Was Jesus at his weakest place at the end of 40 days? Or, and this would be my view, was he actually at his strongest place? Was he actually at his, at his best place? I mean, think about what's happening right now with Russia and Ukraine. What seems quite obvious now is that for months, if not years, you had two independent nations preparing for battle against one another. Both of them took their best wisdom and lined it out and strategized. And now that's playing itself out. Isn't that the story of Matthew 4? God taking his son and not beating him to a pathetic pulp so that he could prove how awesome he is, but actually making him his strongest. What if part of the value of Lent is that we remind ourselves that actually our real strength comes from God? What if part of what happens is there's this thing that happens where we're like, wait a minute, whatever your fast is, I haven't done X, I haven't, I haven't had eggs, whatever it is that you're doing, I haven't had that for a week now, and yet I feel better than ever. And what if that's not just a nutrition thing, which Dr. Brandon could nerd out with you on, but what if it's a, it's a spirit thing? What if we do this because in our weakness, he is strong, and if we don't have these built-in reminders of that, then the next catastrophe on the horizon of this thing called life becomes terrifying. But because we have this practice of fasting and feasting, we're reminded that the worst-case scenarios are very real. We can look forward to communing with Christ in unique ways in those particular seasons. You know, it's on Ash Wednesday, and again, we're going to give you the option to, to, to do this, Historically, traditionally, ashes are applied to the forehead in the shape of a cross. 
And what is said is, from dust you came, and to dust you shall return. What's the unspoken refrain? What's the implication of all of this? Were it not for the resurrection? Like, that's the promise. It's, it's this celebration. It's a reminder to me that, that, that Lent is not just a season of fasting. It's a season of feasting or an anticipated feast. I would challenge you even now, like start planning in your head, like how are you going to feast on Easter Sunday? What are you going to eat and what are you going to do and how are you going to celebrate? Because the rhythm here is, is first to fast, but not because we're hopeless, but, but to actually fast so that when we feast, it's all the greater. At the risk of overemphasizing the East here this afternoon, I was talking to my friend Father Moses last week, and he said, Adam, our, our Easter, their, their Pascha service starts at 11.30 p.m. We're not going to do this. <laughs> it goes till 3 in the morning. But he said, here's the, he said kids are sleeping on the floor. Like, it's just, it's just crazy. He said, but here's the deal. When people show up at 11.30, they bring a basket full of all the food and all the versions of alcohol and all the different kinds of sausage, and all this stuff that they haven't touched, in their case, for like 60 days. And at 3 o'clock, when we're done celebrating the resurrection, we go down into the basement of the church, and he said, you've never seen anything like it. (laughs) What if this is a season of fasting and feasting? Because really what we're trying to do is build towards, were it not for the resurrection? What if this is a season where we're reminded that it's, it's in our weakness that he is strong and there's this kind of offering that we're making to God. God, there's stuff coming down the pipeline of my life and this is true for every one of us. I don't know what it is. I suspect it'll involve suffering in many different versions, not constant. Life's not always gonna be about fasting, but I suspect it's coming. And God, would you use this season to actually build into me Not a control over what happens, but just an internal peace that whatever it is that happens, I've got this built-in track record of a God who's faithful to show up. Last thought, I was listening this morning to a guy named John Tyson. He's a pastor in New York City. Uh, I think it's called Church of the City. He's been planted right in the midst of the secular world for over a decade. He posed a question that is in one sense terrifying, but in another sense I think it speaks to exactly why we do Lent. He said, all I've been hearing for a year or two is that this this is the hardest season of being a Christian that I've ever been a part of. He said, what if it's valuable to actually flip that around and to think to ourselves, and this might be easier than anything out in front of me? To the extent, extent that's true, I'm sorry if it's depressing, and I'm not trying to create a circle the wagons kind of thing, but to the extent that it's true, that's why Lent matters. Not that we're faithful, but that we can count on God will be faithful in whatever season of fasting comes our way. So I'd like to pray. Uh, the band's going to come back up here. We're going to give you a chance to receive communion. Ashes over here. Please, we're not trying to create a treadmill. If you don't want to do the ashes, just peace out and, and skip it. Lord God, Lord, it's, it's awesome to see that it's, it's like by definition impossible for this to be a treadmill of what's happening right now because 
for almost everyone in the room, we don't have an expectation we're building on, but there's this, this testament of trust and this testament of desire. And so, God, we, we do what healthy people do. We vulnerably say to you that we can't predict the future, we can't control it, uh, but we know who will be there. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Narrate Church, find us online at narratechurch.org or look us up on Facebook or Instagram. 